I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is The Most Important Medicine. If you don't know me, I'm a licensed psychologist, trainer, and consultant, and on this podcast, we're here to discuss how talking about trauma and providing a space for physicians and patients to share experiences is how we transform medicine. I work with physicians and healthcare organizations on the daily, and every time we begin these conversations, and I even hint at the discussion about trauma, I'm met with two things either intense compassion and curiosity, or a whole lot of skepticism. And that's what we're here for, to make understanding and discussing trauma accessible, and even more important, how to respond to trauma so you feel more competent as a healthcare provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients today. So today I am joined by Bahia Overton. She is the executive director for Black Parent Initiative. She holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in social work. She is completing her PhD in social work research, focusing on experiences of African-American female adolescents in foster care. Ms. Overton most recently served as the director of equity and partnerships at the Chalkboard Project. She is also the executive consultant for Joy DeGruy Publications. She assists Dr. DeGruy in researching historical trauma and developing new models and methods for culturally responsive service delivery. Ms. Overton has also assisted with training and development for government agencies in creating and sustaining equitable policies and practices. Over the last 14 years of practical experience as a professional in the field of social, social work, she has served as a child and family therapist, curriculum director, and culturally specific treatment specialist in several states and with various community-based organizations and government entities. Holy smokes, you're busy. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot. <laughs> um, where are you at in your, in your doctoral program? So I'm at the very end. Um, I actually am. Um, I've done my study. I've done everything. I'm doing the final write-up. I'm actually writing the last, I think I have maybe 20 or 30 pages left of my dissertation towards the end. I just, it's just hard to find time to write, but that's, that's, I'm at the end. Like I hope to be finished. um, I have to be finished actually by December. So that's the. Oh my gosh. I have like, I don't know if it's like compassion trauma for you right now or what, having written a dissertation. Yes. Yes. But it's, it's, it's exciting work, but it just, the writing is grueling. So Yeah. 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 But I'm close. So that's that's your kind of formal introduction. And, and for those of you that don't know, Bahia and I met through Project Echo, um, which is an international education program for professionals. Um, but when I spoke with Bahia, her advocacy and voice, like your your um, ability to just share information and be an advocate. Um, is really why I wanted to invite you on this podcast. And so in a less formal way, I read all your formal stuff. Tell me a little bit more about you and what you do. Well, that's exciting. Well, you know, and I'm I'm so happy, you know, being in the ECHO um, faculty has been interesting because again, um, we're supporting people who work with various communities, right? But um, I do think you bring your whole self into whatever you do. So, um, so yeah, I am passionately, compassionate for the black community. So that is probably um, the hat that I wear in every circle that I'm in. It's like, how do I compassionately work within my community? Um, I don't think there's any community that's more superior to other communities or have, you know, worse situations necessarily. But I think that when you have lived experience in a community and you understand the needs, if you can create some level of healing, um, restoration, right, you should. 
do your part. So that's what I do. Um, but I also am an African dancer. I love to dance. My daughter's actually in the company I used to be in. Um, and I have three children. I have a 19-year-old son and a 17-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old adopted son. Um, uh, he is my cousin, which is the only reason why I add that piece. <laughs> he is related to me by blood, but I didn't birth him. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and I have, I have a business, I have a business called Bahia Honey Beauty and Wellbeing, which I started in 2005 when my daughter was born and I created this like eczema cream. Anyway, it like blew up. So I can't stop it because people keep telling me they need it. <laughs> so I wasn't interested in being in lotion mogul, but it's, it, the business has grown. So called what? Honeybee? Bahia Honey Beauty yeah. and Wellbeing, but there's no honey in it. My best friend, after I'd been like giving it to her for her son for a few years was like Bahia honey <laughs> have to say share this <laughs> so I just call it Bahia honey because the way she said it Bahia honey yes. um so yeah and I just I just I think um and the other part of my identity is I'm I'm a Baha'i member of the Baha'i faith which really espouses the oneness of humanity so everything kind of gels together yeah. I love this. I, this is why I'm loving doing these podcasts. I have to say, if I could just do this all day, every day, because <laughs> I learned so much, so much more, right? Like we get our bios, right. professional bios. And if I gave mine, it would be equally, you know, um, wordy and a mix of impression and, but it's not our whole self. Right. Right. And so I love knowing that you're a dancer and an entrepreneur in skincare and a mom. Yeah, it's crazy. Some of our most important roles are not on our professional bio. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I have so many questions. And like I told you, I was stalking you, cyber stalking you and who I found to be your mom. Um, So Dr. DeGruy, and you can talk about this in a minute, um, but I've been reading everything on the Black Parents Initiative website and about you. So I have so many questions. Um, But let me back up and just ask you as a professional and an expert, um, how would you define trauma? Um, I think it is, it is any damage that has been done to your social, emotional, mental, physical well-being um, as a result of an incident, um, a history, um, a series of interactions. Um, you know, I think when people experience, you know, people have different responses to things, to traumatic events, right? But when something has caused damage to your ability to thrive just as a full human being, I think that is trauma. And the way that you approach it, I think we have to be compassionate um, with one another because we have all experienced trauma in some form. Um, And some traumas have been more um, impactful in our lives than others. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, I think this is interesting. I think that it's important to be trauma informed. I say that all the time, but I do think that the problem with how people view trauma informed work is that they often look at it as being understanding of the experiences that people have had, which is true. But for me, what I found is that it's more beneficial to the people I'm trying to serve if I'm informed about the systems that have been traumatizing them. Mm. So, so for me, it's less about, I understand, like I always say, like, <laughs> that's why I say about resilience too. I love resilience. Mm-hmm. Please don't have me on here saying that I don't believe in resilience. But, you know, like I said, if you stab me, 
multiple times. And you're like, I'm just so surprised and amazed and celebrating the fact that you didn't die. (laughs) And I'm like, you're just so resilient. And then you go, I'm informed about how to work with people who get stabbed. But I really want to know who's stabbing you. <laughs> like that, that's the trauma informed for me. I want who is stabbing you and how do we stop the stabbing more than celebrating you or a community for not dying under the pressure of, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's it's interesting. I, w- I had the a great opportunity to work with the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, and we were talking about the concept of resilience. And they were so fabulously honest with me. They're like, we're so freaking tired of being resilient. Like, could everybody just like, great. Native Americans are resilient. Like, and it's because we've had to be right. So let's look at the reason. And it's exactly what you're saying, right? What are the systems or what is happening upstream Mm -hmm. that's creating the oppression? Be informed about that. Like be informed about how people have experienced trauma. And I think starting from being proactive about that, about what systems you're engaging with. You know, when you have a a traumatizing physician, right? That person has disproportionately impacted negatively everyone from specific cultural groups. And so you're like, I'm informed that, that, you know, that you have had bad experiences, but are you informed about this particular physician who's causing havoc? Like, what are we doing? So I think that sometimes the healing can begin for people when the traumatizer has some level of accountability. Because if you're a domestic violence survivor and you're like, hey, I got through this and I am moving forward with my life, but that abuser continues to abuse people. Yes, yes you have survived that. But are you are you able to thrive knowing that the person behind you, because that that domestic violence uh, you know, perpetrator has not been held accountable? You know, that's so when I look at these systems, we're like, we want to be trauma informed, we want to work with underserved and underprivileged and disadvantaged. And I'm like, what about the advantaged, the overserved, the overprivileged who are creating these disparities? And that's where the real because when I work with that, I'm going to help the community that's been impacted by it. It's gonna happen, you know. But that's the part that people don't do. Like they want to like, you know, hug the person who's been stabbed, but they don't want to stop the stabbing. And I'm like, that is you know, that is our work. We have to stop the stabbing. You know? I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and one of the things like kind of my, one of my epiphanies during my residency was um, I was working with all these kids in foster care through the Morrison center yep. and um, they were being, <laughs> they were being dropped off in taxi cabs, right. Mm-hmm. For me to like quote, fix them. Um, and then I was like, wait a second, Um, why doesn't everybody know about this trauma that's happening with these kids? And, you know, eventually when you become more of a veteran therapist, you can have more of a systemic impact. And my goal ever since then has been like to work with healthcare systems, for instance, right. right, To be able to recognize what this looks like and what they're contributing. So this is a perfect segue. So on this podcast, we talk about how trauma can often present in the field of medicine, Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes overtly and sometimes subtly. Will you speak to um, what that might mean within your area of specialty? So um, one of the things that people have to um, be aware of, it's it's hard because we're talking about a lot of times unconscious bias, right? Um, Is that if you have a pattern of thinking, right? It's fueled by your beliefs, which is usually fueled by people in your environment or your profession, Um, And that impacts the decisions you make for those people you're serving and the behaviors that you demonstrate upon them. Right. And then that's the outcomes. So when you think about, for instance, um, African-American women have the 
large, I mean, we're kind of high in every category, but when you look at low infant birth weight, for instance, we have a program called Sacred Roots, which is our doula program and lactation program. Mm-hmm. And let's say that you meet a mom, we get a mom referred to us because like, she doesn't believe in breastfeeding. She's just against it. She's just, you know, she is, is, um, vain and doesn't want to have any problem with it. This is the, you know, and then when you start to have conversations, tell me about a story um, about, you know, what, what your mom told you about breastfeeding. Tell me what your grandma told you about breastfeeding. And then you find out that several generations back, you had someone who was breastfeeding white babies and never had enough milk for their own children. Mm. And that trauma created a, you know, aversion to breastfeeding nice. that then became transmitted into the communication about breastfeeding to the child, to the granddaughter, to where now we're sitting with someone who didn't have that direct traumatic experience, but who still is impacted by the trauma of her great grandmother. So how are we then going to recognize that, honor it and say, and you get to be the dream that she had by being able to freely breastfeed your baby and give it the sustenance, you know, your baby the sustenance that needs. Like you have this ability. And so for us to understand that's where the root cause of this trauma was, not this vain, you know, woman who just doesn't want to ruin her body. When we when we take the time to think there may be trauma. And what we know is that um, all of the research around um, disparities in treatment of people in medical uh, positions is that people don't perceive us to be in pain. People don't perceive us to be um, victims. Um, people don't perceive us to be innocent. So when those things are unconsciously underlying and you're like, does this person really need pain medication? Does this person really need psychological support? Are they trying to get over me? Because there's some unconscious bias you have that this is who Black people are. Same thing with our our, our school-based program. Mm-hmm. I provided all of my, my school-based program staff with a letter for parents that said, dear Mrs. Such and Such, so happy to have my son in your class. This is something to learn about my son. He loves this. This is his favorite subject, favorite recreational activity. Um, this is how he'd like to be reminded when he's off task. This is how he would not like to be reminded when he's off task. Yeah. And recognizing the studies and the research that have been done to show that unconscious bias disproportionately negatively impacts Black students. What is your system of checks and balances to mitigate potential harm that could be caused by your unconscious bias? I said, now. We have our logo on there. So, you know, there's an organization backing this. You say, I'm excited about being a partner with you and my child's learning, but I'm proactively explaining to you my expectation that you're going to take that into account before you call my son out in the class or send him to the principal's office, because Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to that principal who is the leader of that system and say, I proactively shared this with my teacher. I didn't react because we all have somebody say something really awful to a child and have the teacher, the, the black parent up there cursing them out and then banned from the school. Okay. That's what happens because yep. they're so livid that their child went to school and was, was traumatized. I had a friend of mine, she cut some um, lines in her son's eyebrow. Cause that was like the style. And the first thing the teacher said was, Oh, wow, you must be a gang member. So oh. if that's what, if that's what you hear when you come in school, the te- the parent was livid, you know, went off. And I said, I, I hear you, but we're not going to make any systemic change because you put that teacher in their place. How about we start being proactive about our expectations? So it gives everyone a chance to start off on the right foot. And then you hold that accountability to the system by saying, I proactively said I wanted to engage in partnership. Proactively said, don't call my son out in the middle in the front of everyone. He's the only black kid in the class. I proactively said that. So we have created some ways to say, we don't want to wait till the trauma happens. Mm -hmm. We want to see what we can do to make people aware of the potential, right? Where are all the potential spaces? for trauma to occur when it comes to our community. 
these are the areas and to to have compassion for communities who have been you know rung through you know like mm-hmm. systemic structural any way you can talk about like they've been put at the bottom and then you know my mom used to always say you kick me and then you say that I limp mm-hmm. complain about my limp mm-hmm. and you've kicked me and so I think that that's the part where we're trying to empower parents to say like we understand these realities but you have power and we're here for you you know so I know that like people are listening to this right now and they're like, I got to pause this because I'm writing so many notes. <laughs> so I want to just underscore a couple of things. The first thing, when you were talking about inherent bias, I kind of wrote down. And so correct me. I wrote down, like if people are more linear in their thinking that bias creates beliefs, which create behaviors. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I want everybody listening right. to think about that, right? right? Bias creates beliefs, which create behaviors. And well, so I think biased influencers, because okay. if you're if your system is is biased and it's influencing you, right, the healthcare system is, is biased and you're an, a physician who's been educated in the healthcare system, mm-hmm. you might not yourself have been biased. But because this is your institution, you're now biased because they have an influence on you. Your parents have an influence on you. You know, your best friend, your husband, these people have influences. Those influences affect your beliefs. Yes. And those, in, those, 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 so if it's a biased influence and it affects your beliefs, then it's going to definitely affect your behavior, mm-hmm. right? But it's those influ- who's And so for me, I'm like, how can I influence the influencers? That's what you're doing. Yes. You're influencing the influencers so that the beliefs can change, so the bias can change, so behavior can change. Yes, hopefully. Listen, I believe it. I believe that when you are speaking to your fellow physicians, around and other people outside of your scope of uh, practice about these things to consider these things. You're a significant person. So what you have to say is significant. So we will hear what you have to say or or the platform that you provided for other people to say something. It still can impact their beliefs, which will definitely impact their, their um, behaviors. So that's absolutely the hope. Um, here's the other thing that I heard you saying that I want to break down for people is that regardless of your organization, for you, it's the Black Parent Initiative, right? And you have um, different um, subparts where you're helping with advocacy, but anybody could take that piece that you're doing, right? And look at the systemic influence. I love the idea of a letter, right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to introduce, I, I actually saw this similarly for kids with disabilities, right? Parent writing a letter saying, this is my child. They have down syndrome. This is what she likes to be called. These are her interests. And essentially what you're saying with that, this example is saying is we're, we're, this is a humanizing process, right? Right. Right. This is my child. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to both protect advocate, but also some of the things that um, you're saying are around um, disrupting mm-hmm. um, systemic traumas, right. and historical traumas. Right. Because right. if that teacher reads that letter, mm-hmm. um, let's say it's a white teacher with a black student mm-hmm. and just pauses for a moment, mm-hmm. right? You've disrupted right. something. Yeah. Just for in the practice, if you're going to be careful with my child because they had that letter, right? then it will put you in the practice of being careful with all students. You know, um, I had, we just actually added a piece that says that my child is not able, is not, I do not give permission for my child to be questioned by police without mm-hmm. my permission. Because that's the other thing is they will question black children. The police will come, something's missing, and they'll just bring black children in there 
and be present without any permit. They don't call the parents. They don't have to tell the parents. Um, so you have to put that in there, like, because it disproportionately happens to black children. Anything's wrong and they just call the black kids in. And so I think, yeah, we, being proactive is super important because again, I don't believe that's the, the whole conversation about imp- uh, intention and impact. There are a lot of really, really good intentions, but if the impact is trauma and harm, then do I care about your intention? We don't. I care about the impact. So if you care, then your intention will be to make sure that the impact is matching up with what you're doing. The impact of what I'm doing. My intention was to do this. My intention. But what was the impact and how are you course correcting? And we're all human beings. Mm -hmm. Right. We have to have some space and some place to do that. Um, I have some wonderful, um, I work with community design partners sometimes, and um, it's mostly a group of white women that uh, helps teachers look at design thinking for their classrooms and their teaching. Um, And I was like, this is really great because the vast majority of our elementary and middle and high school teachers are white women. And Mm -hmm. so white women talking to white women is very impactful because there is some lived, shared lived experience. So your influence is important. So I really love them. I do work with them sometimes, but I love the fact that I said, your niche is really working with your people, (laughs) women, educators who are white. Those are your people. If you understand that there's no shame in saying, this is who I want to work with, you know, because the impact is solid, you know? And so I love, I mean, I work with them periodically, but I love, I love that they unlearning, right. They're, they're doing some unlearning in that process in a space where they can have a ton of influence if they allow themselves to. Right. Absolutely. The other thing I love about what you're doing with the letter is you're giving a community of people advocacy through also a little bit of power. I have to say, right. Some backbone to say, Hey, this isn't just me. If you have questions, feel free to call any of my people. Right. right? And I think, have to say like people who are um in a space where they have been marginalized or they've lost power that's really important at times to be to give them that right right for sure oh, and because they don't have the language for it you know they, they just go in there hoping that their child doesn't have a bad experience mm-hmm. um and then they you know and again they have their own trauma from school in many cases mm-hmm. and sometimes literally just asking a few questions mm-hmm. and giving them a space and saying we really value when you say I want to be a partner in my child's education please let me know if they're volunteer activities I want to be involved because that's the other thing we found is they don't reach out to black parents for volunteer opportunities for and so they they just don't feel connected to the schools so how are we you know creating space for that and it's 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 so asset based. It's not based on deficiencies. We know that black children have this. They know that. And I never, I never use disparaging language when I'm trying to raise money for my community ever. I never say, oh, you know, we just have these gaps. And I say, you know, we have everything that we need inside of us to thrive. It is systems that have serially um, displaced us, forced displacement over time. It is institutions that have barred us from having great education. It is healthcare systems that have denied us service. I had a cousin who um, uh, almost died of COVID um, in, she was in Georgia, 45, um, relatively healthy, um, didn't have any major health problems, um, got COVID, neither of her parents were in the state, no one could come in the hospital. They wanted to put her on a palliative plan. And we're a proactive, educated Black family. We were coming, trying to find out information. They said, you know, there's nothing we can do for her. We're going to take her off the ventilator. We had a friend of ours who's a white doctor call there. He was demanding to speak to the pharmacist, spoke with the pharmacist, said, what is going on? She's healthy, blah, blah. The pharmacist said, well, we didn't give her that medication. And I know that we didn't because we don't have it. 
And they told us that they had given her this, all the medication. So he demanded they get their medication. She went from a palliative plan to a rehabilitative plan. I saw her uh, two months ago, walking, talking, everything. Oh my gosh. So, so when you start to think about his influence, yep. everybody yeah. doesn't have a friend of them who's a white doctor who can go and demand, make these demands as, as much as we were advocating for ourselves. You know what I'm saying? We were trying and we were, you know, suggesting, we're like, can we get a drone in there? We just want to see her. You know what I mean? And it was like, it, they were not, they were unwilling. And so using it, so anyone listening to this, especially a healthcare provider has the ability to influence the people around them, right? Um, to say all the things that I should be able to say, but that I won't be able to say. Right. So how, do we, how do we craft that letter? Like the letter that you're writing for the kids in the classrooms and teachers. Right. right. Um, how do we craft that advocacy? Because we know that black people who are seen by black providers do better. Right. right. Know that the, the research is there. And if you, right. if you haven't seen that research, I will link to it in the show notes today. Um, but that's not always accessible. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So how do we craft that same letter for a black parent? Uh, a black spouse, a black mom, like what would be the bullet points in that letter to the physician or to the provider? Um, I would, you know, I think we would have to say something like um, at, you know, I'm really excited to start this kind of healing process with you or to engage in a, in a, a, you know, a medical relationship with you. Um, These are some of my, my fears and my concerns based on the research that I've read and things I've experienced. I have some trauma around, and trust issues when it comes to healthcare systems who have historically experimented and, um, you know, taken advantage of um, my community for health, you know, purposes. I have some anxiety around that, right? Um, I'm leery of front desk stop staff who don't speak to me kindly. All those things, because these are the things that, ha- you know, I would, in advance of my meet appointment, you don't have to do their, like your health history. This is my emotional health history with medical systems. <laughs> and so, in taking my history, you also have to understand my history and experience with these systems, right? Um, we have had, we right now we're trying to explore legal ways to create, because we've had, we have a doula program mm-hmm. where we're supposed to be able to advocate for our mothers. And we have had some horrendous stories where the doula was completely disregarded and the the, the nurses and I mean, just horrible things that have experienced with our, with our mothers. And we're like, okay, we have doulas for this reason, mm-hmm. right? We're trying to reduce the maternal, you know, death outcomes. We're trying to reduce, you know, these low infant birth weights and this, you know, children dying um, shortly after delivery in our community. And we're seeing all the reasons why, right, Um, the way that they're treating our mothers. And so, um, you know, going in with even the doula being able to say that, but also what I was thinking about is where you can really help is the idea your doctor's going to get a whole lot of time, right? with each uh, patient often. But if that insurance person who, who does the screening or if the the person comes to take the vitals also it adds in a couple questions that we are empathy interviewing, right? Yes. Um, tell me about a time that you, um, your favorite experience with a doctor. What was that like? You know, what things, what, what things were the doctors saying? What were they doing? Um, what made it a good experience? Um, tell me about a bad experience that you had. Tell me, what were the things that you hated about that experience? Even just asking those questions like a conversation, you'll gather so much data about how to best serve this, this staff. This is, you know, because, or this is not staff, this client or patient, because you're learning about their story. You know, they're telling you their story in the medical, uh, their medical history, their yeah. story. 
you know? And so I think that part in doing better for, especially because our, our cultural values are relationship-based. Mm-hmm. Black people, they care the most about how you treat me. This is why you'll have these little, little tiny, you know, second graders getting pushed out of class. Cause you're talking to me crazy. I know you're my teacher, but you don't get to talk to me crazy. <laughs> you're, you aren't talking to me. Yet. Yeah. yeah. So because of that, I might just go off. You may get nothing out of me. So when I'm telling teachers, you think it's extra to do this little empathy interview with this kid, but it's going to make your life so much easier as an instructor to say, Hey, tell me about your favorite day at school. What was happening? What did you, your favorite teacher? What, what did they do that made them your favorite? Finding those things out. Um, and they sometimes could just be like, they always smiled at me. Every time I came in, they just smiled at me. You know, little things that you may not realize you don't do for black children. So then you start to say, like I tell my staff, have the juiciest face ever and being light and love to every family who walks in the door. Because I guarantee you in Oregon, people are not lighting up when they walk in the store. They're not lighting up when they walk in the medical office. They're not lighting up when they come in the classroom. So what we're going to do is when they come in, we're going to be so much light and love to them that they're going to be lifted literally by that. And so we have this, our, our um, executive assistant who's in the front is a guy named Quentin, and he is the best at beaming. Oh my, how are you to every family that comes in gets greeted by Quentin and they, he gives them so much love. He told me when he got hired, I have a delightful personality. He absolutely has a delightful personality. I love that. Facts, facts. Here's the thing, right? We can encourage the, the patient in this instance to advocate for themselves through story and through like, this is how I'd like to be known. And this is some of the traumas, but we're also talking about more upstream systemically to be truly trauma informed means that the physician, the provider, the nurse, the front office staff, mm-hmm. that they're asking questions, right. that they're being curious about medical experiences that they are. What did you just say? Leading with light, right? Yeah. 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 I'm excited to see this patient, this family, this couple, this new mom, whatever the case may be, right? Why is this so freaking hard to talk about? I think I think that what happens is is that people get very stuck in their uh, fragility. They're very fragile when it comes to having responsibility. So like when I tell people, when we talk about historical racism or slavery and they're like, I wasn't there. And I'm like, I wasn't there either. But we still both are responsible for how we respond to what we've been given, right? So if if I've been given, handed down to me, um, in a lot of ways, the trauma of, of exclusion, right? And oppression, and I have to navigate through that. I don't just say, oh, well, I still went to school. I still, you know, hustle made things happen, right? The same way when you're like, okay, several generations ago, I had very oppressive individuals who earned their living for free for generations off of the suffering of other people. That may not be directly your fault, but the benefit that you have, even if you're poor, the benefit that you have in being able to walk around and people genuinely being okay to seeing you, okay? Especially in Oregon, I'm like, I still have never gotten over the shock reaction. It's not just, you know, when you go down South, there's people who don't like black people and you kind of, I lived in down South for years and you walk somewhere, you go, oh, they don't like us over here, okay. But it's very clear, right? But they're still not surprised to see you. There's enough black people in the environment that they're like, okay, here's here they come. But here I was at, um, where was I at? I was at um, what is the um I can't the 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 mall that's it's like off of it's off of I-5. It's a um 
what it, it's, I don't know. I can't. Bridgeport. You're probably talking about Bridgeport. Bridgeport. I'm just imagining where are, mo- where are the right. most. Bridgeport. <laughs> I was in Bridgeport and I was with my husband, and my children in Bridgeport and we're walking around and we're just enjoying. I mean, I, one of my favorite stores is there, like going to the store and I'm having a great time. My children are keenly aware of people staring at us. And they're trying to figure out one, like, who are we? Are we someone like is, is my husband a blazer? Like, who are they? <laughs> like, who's this black family? Why do they get to be here? And, you know, and they kept staring. And so what I started doing, because I was like, okay, I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want to, you know, my mother will, will completely send you a shoot you a look if you're staring at her. Right. Mm-hmm. But that also affects me if I shoot you a look. But that's again, my mother didn't raise me with the trauma that she was raised with. So, so I have a little bit of a barrier to my cortisol being triggered when someone treats me a certain kind of way. Because mm-hmm. I my mother's done a lot to to you know sustain me as a child. I was sustained. Um anyway, so I'll walk up to people and I go, Oh, hey. So I noticed that you were staring at me. So please tell me how do we know each other? Right. So I was asking them, right? Because again, I love it. I'm going to put it on you. I'm not going to own the weirdness that you're doing Yeah, and internalize it. Right. And that's what makes the, when I, when I was asking like, what makes this hard? It's because this discomfort mm-hmm. on the part of that receiver, right. <laughs> going, Oh shit. Right. Right. Or, you know, yeah. that they weren't doing it or that this is like, there's no good reason why, but it's hard, right? It's hard it's to discomfort. own. It's discomfort. My thing is, what people have to start to recognize, and this is what I used to deal with in the school social work, where we talked about the concept of safety. I don't feel safe. I'm unsafe. And I kept thinking in this conversation, do you think you're going to be physically harmed? And they'd say, no. I said, so the idea is you're uncomfortable. You're not unsafe. You're uncomfortable. And you're so not used to being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm uncomfortable every single day of my life after I walk out of my house. Mm-hmm. It's just something I've had to adjust to. I, it's not that anyone's being ugly to me. I was telling someone, I walk out of my house. And I, wanted, I told this woman that this woman, um, I know this is like, I have all these segues, but this uh-huh. woman that I, I was kind of looking at this, this, this school uh, Facebook page of my kids. And this one particular woman had been just hunting me down, trying to have a play date with my daughter. And I just was ignoring her. But anyway, but I'm looking down and I'm looking at some of the comments she was making around the boundary changes. People are really racially charged around these boundary changes, school boundaries. Yes. They're going to go to school with black kids and all this. So I'm just, I'm not commenting. I'm just reading so I can kind of gauge the, the temperature of what's happening with these, these. I don't want my children to go to school with those children and all this language. And this particular woman, her comments were so insightful and loving. And and so I agreed to go to coffee with her. And so we're at coffee and she says, I guess all my hounding worked. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. I said, the hounding would have never worked because you're perceiving that it would benefit your daughter to have this black friend. Have a black my friend. Has plenty of white friends. She, yeah. It's not necessarily a new experience she needs to be For with her. you. I said, now I know that your daughter's an individual, but it's going to, it needs more to the fact that you just want her to have an experience with my child for me to spend time with both of you. That's it. It's got to be more than that. I said, I'm here only because I like what you had to say. I saw the action of who you were and that made me want to spend time with you. Right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 She's like, but well, I'm an individual. I said, I want you to, to, how many black people are in this coffee shop right now? And she said, I don't know. I said, I do. It's only me. <laughs> I said, now, if it was you and you woke up in the morning and you're just Liz and your mom, I'm mom and Bahia in the morning, right? I wake up in the morning and then I, you walk outside and you immediately realize that you're white Liz because all your neighbors are people of color. So you're like, oh, Hey, Jamal. Hey, Malika. You know, hey, Keisha. Hey, Juan. Right. This is what you're doing. And so you don't, they're not being mean to you. You're just aware now. Like I'm white Liz. 
And then you get in the car and you turn on the radio and let's just say it's just a black radio station. They're cracking jokes and they're talking over each other and you don't really get it, but you're like, it's cool, but it's not you. Right. And then you go to your barista and normally they ask you weird questions to me. They're weird questions like, so you have something fun planned for the afternoon. It's so strange. But instead of that, you have a black person who goes, so can I help you? Like they're very direct. <laughs> like, what do, what do you need? Like, you know, this is, let's just get going. And you're like, oh, okay. That's, all, that's different. But they're not mean. It's just not your cultural way of being. So you go to work and everybody's connecting with, how was your weekend? How are your kids? And you're like, they're just wasting so much time, but they're really establishing relationship because that's the cultural value. And then you sit in a meeting and you can't get in because people are jumping over each other and no one's giving, doing Robert's rules of order. And you're like, oh my God, you're like, what is happening here? And it, they're kind to you. They're loving, but it's just not you. And then you get home and you're like, ooh, just me in my house. And then the all black PTA calls you and goes, you coming to PTA? And you're like, hell no. <laughs> okay. That doesn't mean I'm exhausted. I'm just exhausted at trying to fit into other people's way of being. I said, now that's one day you'd be exhausted. That is my life. Mm-hmm. I said, so when you tell me you're uncomfortable about having a conversation, it's really hard for me because I went into an office where nobody spoke to me in the morning, mm-hmm. where, where I would ask if I didn't agree with something that someone else said in the space, even though I was the most educated in the room, they'd say, did you understand the memo? <laughs> did you get it? Oh, like, yeah. so these are the things that are happening to me all day long. Mm-hmm. And then I get home and then the PTA calls me, says, well, we really want to, you know, we don't have any black representation. And I'm like, no, thank you. And then they go, see, they don't care about their children. Mm. It's trauma that is rooted in all of that. Everything day of my life, right? I had a, I had a, a incident where an Uber driver accused my son of trying to rob her. We didn't know. This. We just six police swarmed in front of my house. I'm in a very nice neighborhood. I built my house. It's a very nice place. They're all, so my neighbors are all outside. Like, you know, what's happening? My son stands there and is like, I don't, you know, what's going on. So he just stands there. They pat him down. They do all this stuff. They sit in my, my front op- of my, they come into my house and the, and the officer says, this is a nice house. Very strange thing to say when you've just accosted my son. So we're sitting there and we're just quiet where we're waiting for them to go back and talk to the Uber driver. And they tell my son, we have dash cam. He said, great. They're like, do you want to change the story? He's like, not at all. So they go back and they keep coming back. We are sitting there with that, that person for two hours in my living, in my, in my foyer, just sitting. And finally he, they say it does her at her story is not adding up. It doesn't make sense. You know? So we've had all this happen to us. Right. And so he gets up and the police officer says to me, thank you for being calm. Mm. But what I, what I don't appreciate is that number one, if I was a white man and said, I want your badge number, you humiliated me, you embarrassed my son, you're going to pay for this. That's what a white man whose son is accosted would be well within his rights. So please don't congratulate me for not acting in the way that I should be able to act so that you don't have to kill me. That's right. <laughs> like, it's like, like I can't, and, and let's be clear. I'm very aware that I speak what my, my grandma would call the King's English. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm very aware. I'm very aware they live in a nice house, a nice car outside. Mm-hmm. So there's something that lets you know that this particular black person may have someone connected enough to where there could be consequences for how I re- respond here. Now, if I had a, an accent, if I lived in a poor neighborhood, if my son looked a certain kind of way, right? Again, all of that takes away people's natural compassion for that exact same situation could have happened, right? And I'm my cortisol is because I'm already had bad experience with the police. And I'm like, why are you bothering us? What? And I'm and all that, that's a natural trauma response. 
could end up in the death of me or my son or both. Mm-hmm. That the the lack of compassion in that space, mm-hmm. right? When you see these videos of these children kicking little black children when they're like three and four years old, teachers kicking them, and um, you know people in the park, like there's a natural sense of lack of compassion for those kids, and I think that that is the part that people don't want to sit with. I'm more comfortable with my dog. My dog sleeps in my bed with me. I love my dog. If something happened to another dog, I could be like, oh, that could be my fluffy, <laughs> but I have no relationship with black people. So when I see things happening to them, I don't feel compassion for them. And that messes with me. Like, yeah. I don't want to not feel compassion, but I don't. Mm-hmm. So then I don't want to talk about it because then I have to face that feeling. And for me, I'm like, I think that's a huge piece of like, when you think about people who cut cutters, mm-hmm. a lot of people who are cutters, they're cutting themselves to re- to create pain, to detract from pain. Right. Or to create 100% feel things, right? I want to feel something. And I feel like having these conversations is like little tiny emotional cutting, right? Because it's like, oh, I got to feel it. I got to feel it. I got to feel it. And, but the more that you do that, the more you go, oh my gosh, like if I'm feeling like this, Mm -hmm. then she must feel like that when she gets cut. Mm -hmm. I can recognize her humanity. When I can recognize her humanity, I can move forward. I can. I can be so much more connected to the rest of the, I mean, there's so much joy in, in those connections. The people that I love, I don't have, I, my dad says, you don't have the average Joe white friends. I'm like, I really don't. My white friends are like very down. My white friends will take a bullet for me. Okay. Because they understand. Now they still may do and say stuff that's off the hook. Cause that's just not there. And I'm like, don't, <laughs> but I'm I, comfortable. <laughs> no. And they do. And I think about, um, uh, what's the woman? Her name was uh, Brittany. She's the one that, that climbed the pole and took down the Confederate flag. Oh, I don't know. I don't know her name. Brittany. So I forget. Well, what happened was nobody knows this part of the story. What happened was they had a whole team, right? A whole group of people, multiple cultures that had a plan for this, this, mm-hmm. this kind mm-hmm. of, you know, action. And they practiced, you know, shimming up a pole is not easy. They did all the, they did all this stuff. They knew the police were going to come. They knew they were all going to be arrested. They had bail money. They had all the stuff set up, right? Well, what they decided to do when they when she got on the pole, they decided they were going to electrify the pole. They were going to electrocute her. That's how they were going to get her down. Wow. They decided they're going to electrocute her. And when they they hadn't thought of that. So when they realized that, one of the white males in their group went and put his arms around the pole and held onto the pole. And they were not willing to kill him, electrocute him. to electrocute her. And I said, So if you're not one of my friends who's willing to hug the pole, then we are not going to be friends. Because I have to know that if my life is in danger and my life is in danger in the medical system, it is in danger, right? You look at the health disparities in our, in our birth weights and our, and you look at if my life is in danger, if you are an advocate, if you say you believe, and I don't need an ally, I need a friend because your friends will pull up for you. Your friends will show up. That's right. An ally will speak about how unfortunate it is, but a, a, a friend is going to come and put their hands around the pole and say, if they are electrocuting you, they're electrocuting me. Mm-hmm. That level. And they didn't. That's a, He saved her life doing that. Hmm. You know what okay. I'm saying? So yeah. I, I'm, I'm just cognizant of our time. Oh, sorry. But I'm, don't be sorry at all because I could just sit here and keep listening and then it's going to be one o'clock in the afternoon. But here's what I want people who are listening to take from this. I mean, I, I have to be honest with you. I'm still stuck on the breastfeeding story. Mm. Um, and then you've given about half a dozen more examples that if, if people listening, here's what I want people to think about right now. If you're listening and you're uncomfortable, pause and be uncomfortable. And then keep listening and then pause and be uncomfortable. 
and then keep listening. I'm uncomfortable. Right. The story about Bridgeport and like people looking at you and wondering, like, if your husband's a trailblazer, right. It's like, shit, have I done that? Have I done that? Right. Um, I, I want anybody listening to these stories to just pause and sit with discomfort. It's the only way we grow. It's the only way we learn It's the only way we, we really reflect. Um, so let me, let me shift us into kind of a a wrap up here. Um, first of all, uh, bpi.org, which we'll put in the show notes as chock full of resources and information. Can anybody in the black community access you access the supports? How do they do that? Yeah. So you go to our, if you go onto our program, they have all of the program directors, managers, they have emails on there. You can directly email them, reach out. We we are in five schools in Portland. I don't know because we have school-based staff that are in five schools. Uh, we do recruitment. I mean, really it's, it's the more that people come to us and usually it's majority is word of mouth. People mm-hmm. hear like, where are some services that I can get? Um, we really, we provide some emergency services, but mostly it's really equipping people to advocate for themselves for the things that they need and to recognize where they have power. They haven't felt like they had it in the past. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so it's not a Band-Aid program. We're definitely not just like, you know, I know like you have to be able to, you, if you're hungry, we got to make sure you get some food, but we also need to know how we can make sure you're not hungry next month. And what are you empowered to do so you're not hungry next month? So we definitely have a continuous improvement model. Like we're not just taking care of people because we don't think they have the ability to thrive. We're really trying to help them navigate their lives in a way that shows them where their potential really is and where we can advocate where there's been systemic like interference. Awesome. Um, Yeah. yeah. If if people want to work with you as a consultant for their organization, their school, their medical facility, how do they get a hold of you? Um, If they get a hold of me, they should email me at Bahia, B-A-H-I-A, at bahiahoney.com. That is my, um, the beauty and well-being part. The well-being part is the work that I do with organizations and that I do sometimes with just small groups um, because it's really like, I feel like I want people to know, I do not think that I am perfect in this work. Mm-hmm. I have, I, I'm giving you my lived experience because that's the truth, but I've also messed up very badly. You know, like I have m- myself, been in a situation where I've made assumptions about someone in the LGBTQ community and vocalized those assumptions. And then I was sitting there in my office trying to um, trying to uh, justify to myself, well, this is how they act. Well, this is how they dress. Well, there all these ways to justify, to hide from the fact that I had caused harm because I think of myself as a good person, a thoughtful person, kind person. And I had to say, bump that, I caused harm. And I reached out and I said, I am so sorry. It was inappropriate what I did. I had no business assuming things about your personal life and especially not to vocalize them. I really hope that I haven't caused so much damage that we can't move forward because I value you. I care about you was not my intention, but I know that I harmed you, you know? And I was like, do you forgive me? Yes or no. (laughs) Check yes or no. Now (laughs) I've done my, right. You know, and they could have said no, but they, they called and they said, listen, the fact that I have you squirming in your office worried if I'm going to forgive you makes me happy. But the, but the whole idea was, this is how my experience people go, you're not gay. Are you? Or, or I thought you were gay. They'd have to let me know in some way. And they, and he was like, and for me, I'm fine with how I gender my masculinity. So it's my wife. He said, but I get tired of that experience. And I just, I, I grew from that experience. It didn't take anything away from me to apologize Oh it was just, my ego didn't want me to apologize, but it didn't take anything away from who I am as a person to say, I acknowledge I created harm and I'm not going to harm you again. 
And you have my word that I'm going to take a pause. Yeah. There's like a whole book in you, by the way, of advocacy letters and reparations letters and, and, and how to truly apologize. Like you could be a script writer. Right. For, I, I, seriously. Okay. So I want to ask you, I have a couple rapid fire fun questions. Oh yeah. Okay. Wrap us up. Okay. Um, so if you could go back and talk to young Bahia, oh. what would you tell her? I think I would tell her to give herself some grace. I think we don't give each other enough grace. I don't think we give ourselves enough grace. Like you're trying really hard. You don't always do the you know right thing. It doesn't always work out the way you want to. Um, but I love you. You are a light and you, you know, giving, taking this grace away from yourself takes away from your light, you know? So I love that. Um, I wish more young girls would do that for themselves. Yeah. Um, so often in healthcare, uh, people get intimidated by professionals, right? Can you share one thing that makes you kind of a messy human, like perfectly imperfect? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it's funny. Um, I have a funny dry kind of a humor. And so, um, I have put my foot in my mouth multiple times <laughs> because I'm cracking the joke like, ah, and then it's a little snarky, funny to me. Um, and then it's not that funny to the person. So I, I've had to um, try to really, because I just think things are so funny that maybe other people are funny. And so I think, um, yeah, that's the one thing that I've, I'm learning because I've, I've, I've done I've done some, you know, made some jokes that I'm like, oh, I don't think they thought that was funny. <laughs> and I've had, you know, so yeah, that's bad. I, I so not bad timing with my jokes. Oh my gosh. Um, that's good. That's good awareness, right? <laughs> um, okay. Last question is it's 11 PM and you have a food craving. What are you reaching for? Oh man. You know, I didn't grow up with desserts really as a kid. So, um, I love food. So like last night I made gumbo. And so if I had woken up at, if I was like at 11 o'clock, like, ah, you know, there's still some gumbo in there. <laughs> <laughs> there's never enough gumbo. I feel like there's never enough. I can have gumbo anytime. So I think if it was late night, that and popcorn. I love popcorn. I love freshly popped popcorn. It's my favorite snack. Sweet mm -hmm. popcorn or salty popcorn? Salty, salty. And I'm not a sweet popcorn person. Unless it's caramel corn, but that's not what I crave at night. It would be yeah. buttery, salty. So delicious leftovers or salty popcorn. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> will you come back and talk to me of again? Of course. We, of course, we are, we are like spirited. This has been so great. And I know for so many people that are listening, um, we've, you know, been talking for, you know, almost an hour, but it's going to be like a three hour episode for them. Cause they're going to like pause, write notes, come back, pause, um, ask questions. So we will link up to all of the things in the show notes, um, about BPI, about the research that we mentioned around black providers, um, the skincare, which oh. <laughs> we're going to link up to also. Um, but thank you. Um, thank you for joining me. Thank you. I, I feel like if I do this podcast, right, I'm going to probably mess it up a thousand times. And um, my hope is that I have people um, like you and, and previous guests who just bring advocacy and humility and grace into this picture. So I, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know what? I want to say one last thing and I, I appreciate you very much, but you know what the most important thing, I think when you were talking about people pausing and being uncomfortable, I would even say pause and just be curious, right? Mm -hmm. Be curious. Am I uncomfortable? And if I am, why? Yes. Right. 
if I'm curious about it, then I can really explore it. And so if you're uncomfortable, be curious about why. If you love what I'm saying, be curious about why. Maybe you need to be in advocacy work. If you are really having a problem with it, is it challenging what you believed? Is it challenging what you've seen? Right. But still, there's no wrong in that. Just being curious gives us all an opportunity to grow. So thank you. Perfect. Okay. All right. Bye for now. All right. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.